You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. I'll be telling some of the title of my sermon tonight, The Heart of Humility. The Heart of Humility. Tonight, as mentioned last week, we are going back to our study in the Gospel of John. We took a long break to deal with some other church matters and to discuss other topics in the Christian life, but now we're back at it, and we'll probably take a couple more breaks because the, the Gospel of John is really a long book, and there's a lot to digest. But remember our, our vision and our purpose for studying this book, as mentioned about 14 sermons ago uh, from the very first sermon, our desire is to propagate the sufficiency of Christ as the Savior and to proclaim the supremacy of the gospel and to cultivate a deep satisfaction in our relationship with the Lord. And remember, this isn't just our desire or our vision for this study. This is actually the Apostle John's purpose for writing this gospel. In John chapter 20, verse 31, and if you remember, this is the thesis of this entire book. There are written, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Remember that the Gospel of John was meant to be an evangelistic book. John is presenting evidence to his readers as to why Jesus was the sufficient Lamb of God, the Savior of the world, why he was considered the Son of God, and why it is important for us to believe in him and, and how we are to have life and satisfaction in his name. And so for 13 or 14 sermons prior to this one, we saw how from the very beginning of John's gospel, how he set up the foundations of the truths that he's going to be speaking about throughout his book. Hence why he begins with the identity of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right in the beginning, John establishes the identity of Christ as God. Then from there, he sets up the reason for the incarnation, why God came in human form. John gives us a state of humanity. He says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Man was fallen, sinful, bound for hell. And the only way for man to be saved was by God coming in human form, coming and sending his son, Jesus Christ. That famous verse, John 3:16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that who should ever believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, having set up those, those foundational truths about Christ, the apostle uh, John also introduces some key witnesses to the conversation. Firstly, the, the star witness, the preeminent witness, the baptizer himself, the herald of Christ, John the Baptist. Along with him, he introduces the first disciples, himself included, to show the validity of their claims, having witnessed all the miracles in the entire ministry of Christ from the very beginning. Then starting in chapter 2, John begins to present evidence to his readers, Christ, to, to Christ's claim as a Messiah, by recalling Jesus' first miracle, the wedding at Cana, turning water into wine. 
Then he recalls Jesus' first step of, of restructuring the religious and spiritual system of his day by going into the temple and driving out all the, the, the money changers and the animals there, overturning the corrupt religious system of the day. Remember how that incident would go viral. It would later uh, be mentioned again towards the end of Jesus' ministry when he's, being, when he's brought into the Sanhedrin. And where we left off is right after this great theological discourse that Jesus has with the Pharisee Nicodemus in chapter 3. Here we get to the heart of God's salvific plan as Jesus talks about the necessity of being born again in order to see the kingdom of God. And remember, that metaphor of being born again, that, 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 that parable, the analogy of being born again, is to simply say that similar to how we had no choice, we did nothing in our physical birth, we have no choice. We could do nothing in our spiritual birth. Again, John is alluding to the, the monergistic, the sole work of God in his salvific plan. And of course, we talked about regeneration in that and how God, is, God takes the dead sinner who is unable to exercise his own faith and God, by his Holy Spirit, brings him to new life, exchanges the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh so that we can now believe and so that we can now turn to God. This is the great truth, the wondrous reality of salvation, that though we are, we are totally depraved sinners, only, only deserving of destruction, the holy God, out of his love, sends his son to die so that we may live. Hallelujah. Amen. Again, all that just from the first two and a half chapters of John. And if you missed any of those, you can always uh, get caught up in our sermons. Uh, they're all online, of course. Now, where we pick up is shortly after the events in Jer Jerusalem and the conversation with Nicodemus. Remember, Jesus had stayed in Jerusalem to perform some miracles after the cleansing of the temple. But now he and the disciples are moving on to the Judean countryside. Let's jump into our passage. Everyone say, jump. It says in verse 22, after, the, the, after this, the events that took place in Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Now we learn in chapter 4, verse 2, that Jesus himself was not the one baptizing, but rather his disciples. He gave, his, gave the authority to his disciples to do that on his behalf. Now, we can also surmise that it's probably so that there is no jealousy or rivalry, rivalry among the disciples as a result of Jesus baptizing people. You, you can imagine the disciples talking about, who were you baptized by? Oh, I was baptized by Peter. Well, I was baptized by Jesus himself. You can imagine the conflict there. And we see some of that same conflict actually take root in the, the church in Corinthians, in the church, the, sorry, the church in Corinth. Uh, years later, according to the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14, it says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Right? Paul himself calls out what was happening, that jealousy, that rivalry that was taking place just because of this act of baptism in the, in the Corinthian church. Now, something crucial to note here is that this baptism that Jesus and his disciples were doing is not the same as believers' baptism. This wasn't a symbolic gesture of dying to self and rising to new life with Christ because Christ had not died or resurrected yet. 
This baptism was similar to what John was doing, a baptism of repentance, a symbolic act of of preparing one's heart for the ways of God. It was publicly declaring, I recognize I'm a sinner, I'm repenting of it, and, and washing myself to symbolize my commitment to follow God. If you remember from our previous sermons on this, baptism in those days was actually only meant to be for the Gentiles, someone who wasn't of Jewish heritage, but wanting to enter into the Jewish faith. And so to have even Jews come and be baptized via John or the disciples was an even greater declaration if you're a Jew. You were saying basically, I am a sinner, I am worse than a Gentile. And I'm present and I'm and I'm representing and I'm repenting in this symbolic washing of myself and washing of my sins in order to follow God. So again, this wasn't believers' baptism that Jesus and the disciples were doing. Jesus again hadn't instituted yet because he hadn't died and rose from the grave, but rather this was a baptism of repentance, similar to what John was doing. And we see evidence of this because not too far off from where Jesus was, John. And his disciples were baptizing people. Verse 23, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. This is a good point of reference, by the way, for, uh, for, for baptism via immersion rather than effusion, which is pouring, or, or aspersion, which is sprinkling, because both John and the disciples needed a plentiful source of water to baptize individuals. The, the, the notion is that you need a lot of water to immerse someone into. Now also note John's commentary in verse 24. John had not yet been put in prison. This is to set up a timeline in his readers' minds because the Gospels of Mark and Matthew had already been around for several years at this point. So the people already know sort of what's going on and sort of what happens to John the Baptist. And spoilers, he he gets thrown into prison and gets beheaded, right? And so John is simply getting up, setting up the timeline that this story takes place in and how it's before the imprisonment of John. Now, in case you were wondering why this story is important, why this gospel of John, or John the Apostle, includes this in his gospel, well, because John is directly opposing a Gnostic belief during his time that elevated John the Baptist to the same level or even higher than Christ. This heresy was called Mandaeism or Sabianism. They were called the Christians of St. John the Baptist. And so to combat this Gnostic heresy, John includes this story. Remember, John has this evangelistic purpose in his gospel. He has a desire to point out why Christ is a sufficient Savior and why the gospel of Jesus Christ is superior to any, all, to any and all false gospels. We'll talk more about that next week. But again, this is to, to combat the, this, the story that follows here in this passage is to combat that heresy that was going around that, that John the Baptist was somehow uh, at the same level or superior than Christ. And so now John brings up this dispute that takes place in the baptizer's camp. Verse 25, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Purification talking about the, symbol, the symbolic act of baptism again. Verse 26, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Very clear what's going on here. John the Baptist's disciples were a little jelly, right? 
a little jealous of what was happening here. John's disciples were jealous that more people were starting to follow Jesus rather than John. See, in this ancient Jewish religious system, your spiritual superiority and the legitimacy of your faith was directly affected by who your teacher was or who your rabbi was. It's why the Apostle Paul, when listing his credentials in Acts chapter 22, he recalls how he was a student of Gamaliel, one of the top Jewish teachers, one of the top rabbis of their day. On the flip side, if you were the rabbi or the teacher of the law, your influence and your prowess as a teacher was communicated by how many followers you had. It's kind of like Twitter or social media today. You're an influencer, depending on how many followers you had. And so, um, and this is exactly why the Sanhedrin and the other, the Pharisees and the Sadducees began to hate Jesus because more people started following Christ rather than the old uh, Jewish order. So with that religious system in mind, John's disciples were probably thinking, oh no, a rabbi is losing influence. More people are following that, that Jesus guy and he's doing exactly what we're doing, baptizing. These disciples of John were probably hoping that by complaining to their master that John would go over to Jesus and, and have some words. Or maybe that John would do something else to attract more followers or to regain his influence. But instead what follows is a demonstration of a proper heart, a, a proper perspective of someone who truly understands his place in the kingdom of God. It is an example of the highest attitude of someone who identifies as a servant of God, a follower of Christ, of someone who has been called by the king, and that is a heart of humility. Instead of responding in a way that would appease his jealous disciples, John the Baptist responds in resounding humility, humility that culminates in the beloved axiom, he must increase, but I must decrease. This motto, this epitaph, holds the same sentiment and weight as, the Paul's, as Paul's words years later when he writes, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Or even our own Savior's words before he is betrayed and delivered to the cross. Not my will, but yours be done. This desire to see oneself diminished in order that God's will, God's glory, God's purpose would be exalted over all our overall ought to be the sentiment that defines every ministry in every Christian life. It is the humble desire to see less of us and more of Christ, to make visible the glory of the Savior and diminish any sense of glory of our own, to put to death any notion of self in order that Christ might live through us. This is the heart cry of someone who truly understands their position before the sovereign work of a holy God and has surrendered to it. It is the comfort in every act of painful and tearful surrender to the Lord, understanding that the glory gained in the name of Jesus Christ is greater than the pain that we experience, giving up whatever it is in this life. This is the heart cry of true humility. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now I imagine this degree, this degree of humility has been lost in ministries and churches and Christians these days. How many of us could truly utter these words and sincerely not look back upon saying it? If the scenario with John's if this scenario with John's disciples happened in churches today, 
The push would be to do something more or different, to compete with other ministries or churches or to attract more members, like, I don't know, play secular music during service or maybe be inclusive by not mentioning sin or maybe instead of wearing clothes made out of camel's hair, John would have to wear ripped jeans and tight shirts to attract a younger crowd and make it seem all cool and fun. Maybe on a more personal level, if we went on social media and saw how successful and how blessed someone else was, how would we respond? In jealousy? In anger? Would we complain to God and say, God, how come they get to have that? Or how come they get to do that? And I don't. Would our pride and our ambitions be stirred up and, and cause us to take things into our own hands? Or satisfied by the portion that God has allotted to us, could we say, God, it's not about me and all about you. It's not about what I want, but what you want for me. God, may you increase and I decrease. Church, tonight my desire is to unpack for us John's heart of humility, the same heart that I believe all of us need help emulating, whether in our personal life or our public life or even in our ministries, This heart of humility is what saves us from many heartaches that is rooted in ambition and pride and self-glorification and what will truly lead to Christ being exalted all the more in our lives. My hope is that by the end of our evening together, our hearts would be in the same posture as John the baptizer. To truly say, God, you must increase and I must decrease. So how do we cultivate a heart of humility? Well, for one thing, I think we need to understand that our hearts are not normally humble. If anything, we are more prone to pride than humility. And so in order for humility to be cultivated in our lives, we need a perspective change. Humility starts with a proper understanding of our position in this life, in the kingdom of God. And by changing our perspective, the posture of our hearts can change as well. And this is what we see from our passage. After, after bringing their complaints to John, the baptizer rep- responds in verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. This is meant to be a shift in perspective. John is reminding his disciples what they failed to realize, that everything he has is from God. His followers, his influence, his knowledge of the word, all of it is from God. This is a good reminder to have if you want to have a heart of humility. Remember that all that we have is from God. All that we have is from God. As James, as James says in his book, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. Everything in this life, from the, the food in our bellies to the roof over our heads, even the, sun, the sun's rays that warm us, all of it is from the goodness and grace of our God. There is nothing that we have in this life that isn't an extension of God's grace in our lives. Undeserved, unmerited, yet God bestows his goodness upon us anyway. That is the right perspective to have if you want to cultivate humility. And we hear this truth all the time, I'm sure, but it's hard to accept at times. Because I think in our, in our minds we think, sure, everything is from God, but I'm the one who works for it. I'm the one who spends the the long hours. I'm the one who does the overtime. I'm the one who who puts in the hours of studying. Understand understand that that ability you have to work or to endure is also from God. 
Listen to the warning that God gives to his people in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 17 to 18. He says, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, and that, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. God is saying, even the ability to work, to the will to endure, the mind to comprehend and, and, and be educated is from him. And he gives us these things to show that he is faithful to keep his promises towards us. Promises to never let us go hungry. Promises to provide for our needs. God gives us the tools, of the ability to thrive and flourish in this life. Not because we deserve it. Remember, we're, we're all just sinners deserving God's wrath. Yet God gives us these things anyways because he is good and he is faithful and because he is loving. The moment that we see things from this vantage point, understanding that all that we have is from God, by the mercies and grace of God, and that we have done nothing to merit the blessings from God, that's where humility starts. That's when we can truly say, God, as long as you're glorified, as long as you are elevated in my life, I am happy to steward whatever it is that you give to me. I'm happy to be faithful to whatever it is that you've allotted to me. This applies even in ministry. Ministries that we have is a privilege, a grace given to us by God. Listen, as a pastor, I'm, I'm often tempted by, um, by how success looks like in a ministry and how to measure that success by the amount of people in this room or the amount of people that comes through those doors. And it's easy to compare our church with other churches and ask, well, what are we doing wrong? Or what if we tried this out? Or what if we did this to get more people in? And the numbers and all of that. But the reality is, none of that is in our control. As long as we are faithful in the little that God has entrusted to us, as long as we are striving for excellence in the gifts that God has entrusted to us, as long as we are faithfully preaching the word unapologetically, then everything else is in the hands of God. Growth is in the hands of God. This is the same sentiment that Paul describes in addresses in 1 Corinthians when the people were arguing about which teacher was greater, whose ministry was better, uh, Paul or Apollos. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 to 7, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. So it's not about Plus Life's name. It's not about Pastor Ian's name. It's not about Elder Benji or Elder Joel or Sister Eden. It's not about our names. It's about Christ's name being elevated in this church. That is what is important. Again, everything that we have, even the people who are sitting in front of me this evening, is a mercy, is a grace from God, is a privilege to be, minister, to, to be able to minister to you this evening. The charge is to be faithful and glorify God with what he has allotted to us. It's the principle of stewardship. We are simply called to oversee faithfully what God has entrusted to us in this household, in this church, and in the ministry. The moment we understand this, this is... 
the moment that we become free of the expectation to be like one of those bigger churches or equate growth with attendance. Similar to John, we need to understand that all who come under our care is from God. It's our responsibility to humbly receive this ministry before us and faithfully steward it with excellence. All that we have is from God. John continues in verse 28. He says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John's saying, I told you, I'm not the Savior. Remember, John's addressing this issue because there's people during his time who still believe that John the baptizer was was um, the Messiah or in uh, equal terms with Christ. Verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. This was again, this was again showing a proper perspective or a heart of humility from John the Baptist. What he is communicating is a proper understanding of his role, his identity, and his purpose in the sovereign work of God, in the kingdom of God. He's not confusing his position with the Savior. He's not desiring a role that isn't his. John is recognizing that what he is, his role in the overall narrative of the kingdom of God has been determined by God himself. Hence why he says, I am not the Christ. I have been sent before him. To his disciples, the fact that he came before Christ should have meant that he has more authority than Christ and that Christ should submit to him. Again, that's how it was this in this religious system. But John says, no, I'm just the herald. I'm just the voice crying in the wilderness to make straight the path for the king. He says, I'm just the best man, the, the friend of the bridegroom. It's not about me, it's all about him. John gives a clear understanding of his role and purpose and from this, we get our second perspective shift. The reminder that all that we are is from God. All that we are is from God. Our purpose in this life, our reason for existence, our identity as individuals, all of it is defined by God and God alone. And for His purposes. As Paul so zealously declares in Romans eleven thirty six, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things... To him be glory forever. Amen. So not just what we have is from God, but also who we are. All that we are is from God. This is even more true for those who have been saved by his grace. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 to 10. But you are a chosen race, that's identity, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's purpose. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. For us who follow Christ, who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, this is our purpose in this life, to be priests who bring glory and worship to God, to proclaim His excellencies to a fallen world, to be a witness of the mercies of God, to bring sinful men out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's our identity, that's our purpose, and that's even our worth, our value. Our value, our identity, and our purpose is founded in the one who calls us by His mercies. We don't determine it for ourselves. Money doesn't determine it. Our position in society doesn't determine it. Our influence doesn't determine it. Our status, our job, 
Our race doesn't determine our identity. Gender and sexuality doesn't define us, nor do we define gender or sexuality. Human choice or human error is not the foundation of our identity. None of those, none of those things determines who we are. Only God does. Only the creator who sets forth his purpose, his sovereign will, is what determines who we are. This is the issue of the world, of course. Godless men and women trying to define who they are apart from God. That's why there's all this confusion and delusion after about gender and identity and sexuality and racial divides. It's like children playing pretend in the dark grasping at something that they have no right in grasping and no right in defining. Listen, God made you either male or female for his purposes. He made you either black or white or Middle Eastern or Asian or whatever else in between for his purposes. Whether you are short or tall or have black hair or blue eyes, God made you fearfully and wonderfully for his purposes. He made you who you are to be defined by his will and his standards that we see from his holy word. And the sooner we understand this, the sooner we can get over our, ourselves and our ego and our aspirations to be God, we can start living in humility for him. Truly walking humbly before our God. By the way, this is a good litmus test, by the way. If... if what we want to be and who we are aspiring to be does not line up with God, what God describes in his word for us, the purposes and his will for us, then we know we've missed the mark. We know that we're aiming for something, we're aiming for an identity that God has not ordained. John recognized his place, his position, his purpose in God's kingdom, and he, and he stuck to it. He wasn't trying to be like Jesus. He wasn't trying to be anyone else. He was staying on the course of who God called him to be. He didn't let pressure from his disciples sway him or others define his calling. I pray, church, we, do, we would do the same. Remember, remember your place in the kingdom of God. Remember who it is that has called you and the purpose as to why he has called you. Remember who you are in light of the cross that gives us the title of son and daughter of the Most High God. So we are to remember that all that we have is from God. And all that we are is from God. Now the prideful heart would say, so everything I have and all that I am is from God and for God. Well, that leaves me with nothing. What do I have then? The heart of humility would say that would leave you with joy. Joy that all the glory and all the praise and all the honor and all the worth would go to the only one who is deserving of it, Jesus Christ. What does John say in verse 29? The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John recognized that people were finally following Christ. They're finally following the true Savior, the Messiah. And it was joy to him. 
when we serve our purpose to point to the goodness and excellencies of God, when our identities as instruments to declare the glory of God has been realized, when we are satisfied with simply being a means in which Christ is honored and elevated in this life, that is where fulfillment comes from, that is where satisfaction comes from, that is where joy comes from. He must increase, but I must decrease, is meant to be a joyful declaration, a willing response to see that we are diminished so that our Savior, our beloved, is exalted. That ought to be what we want, celebrate, what we rejoice in in this life, church. John's joy is a reminder that if we truly want to be humble, to have hearts of humility, then all that we want should be for God. All that we want is for God. This is a true demonstration of humility that, uh, that all that we desire is not for ourselves, but for the glory of God alone. We're second place. It is the heart of the Apostle Paul when he writes from prison to the church in Philippi. Philippians chapter 1, verse 18 to 21. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This is the heart cry of every Christian brother and every Christian sister who willfully stayed behind in Afghanistan in order to preach the gospel to a people who wanted them dead. This should be our heart cry. That everything in this life, whether it results in, in flourishing for us or tribulation for us, as long as it brings glory to Christ. May God increase and I decrease. This only comes from a true heart of humility. A heart that desires only for our Savior to be glorified and the gospel to be preached. A heart that has done away with ego and prideful ambition and has surrendered to the will and purposes of God to advance his kingdom and not our own. A heart that rejoices in diminishing oneself so that Christ would all the more be illuminated. That is a heart of humility. It's not about us. It's all about Christ. There's more to unpack here in the rest of the passage. We'll pick that up next week. But I wonder, church, if that kind of heart would be found amongst us this evening. I wonder, church, if that kind of humility, that desire to have Christ exalted over our own name, over our own church, even our own ministry, is that here in our church? A heart that remembers that everything we have is from God. That though we are undeserving, God in his mercies, in his grace, blesses us anyways. A heart that recognizes that all that we are is from God. Our identity, our purpose 
has been declared by God from the beginning. A heart that rejoices in Christ being glorified, even at the cost of us being degraded, slandered, persecuted, experiencing hardship. Do we have that heart of humility? A heart that can joyfully declare, he must increase, but I must decrease. In every aspect of our life. Our greatest example of humility, of course, is Christ himself. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4 to 8 says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Does this not humble us, church? The Son of God set aside the divinity, all his glory, to come in human flesh, to experience the hardships of human life, to be punished, to be beaten, to be whipped, to be nailed on the cross to die a servant's death. Does this not humble us? Even after hearing that, it seems like we have the audacity to say, oh, but my rights and what I want in this life and my pursuits and my ambition and my identity. When the Son of God himself laid it all aside, so that he can come and die on the cross. Can we truly say in every area of our lives that he must increase? Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.